Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are back in 1 Corinthians. We took a little pause last week for Thanksgiving to look at James. But we're back in 1 Corinthians 5. And this has been our uh, home uh, for quite some time now, this book. We are looking at it um, and uh, section by section, verse by verse. And, uh, and that's intentional. One of the reasons that, uh, that Son and myself, we chose 1 Corinthians for our current book study is because it, uh, it, the book, naturally assists us in our responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God. We want to be able to do that. Uh, it's our responsibility as shepherds to preach and teach everything that God has written in his word. And so we do that um, you know, from start to finish, book usually book studies from start to finish. Um, and what's so great about this book is it covers so many important topics as we study. Paul said um, as he left Ephesus, he was able to say with a clear conscience, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. And, and that is how we view ministry and it's how we view the ministry of preaching on the Lord's Day. We don't have the, the freedom to cherry-pick certain doctrines or to cherry-pick different uh, portions of Scripture to teach because, uh, and then leave others behind. No, we have to teach it all. And um, what we're going to cover this week and next week as we work through chapter 5 on this whole matter of dealing with sin in the church, um, it's an important part of the whole counsel of God. It's one that we need to understand and know. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, many pastors and shepherds uh, actually shrink back from declaring this and letting their church know what the Bible says on this issue. You, but you know, you'd never stand behind a, a lifeguard instructor who never taught his students how to uh, rescue drowning swimmers. And I think it's equally as negligent to stand behind pastors and shepherds who refuse to teach God's people how to rescue wayward sinners because... Um, that is what this text is really all about. Um, it's what James talks about at the end of his letter in chapter 5, that uh, one who turns another sinner back from the waywardness saves his soul, and that is an important, and response, uh, important responsibility we have. It's my job as a pastor, as a shepherd, to point you to God's Word and to explain and to exhort and to exemplify what the Scriptures teach about this whole matter of sin and how we deal with sin in the church such that our church would be a church that reflects Christ's holiness. You know, later on in chapter 9 um, of chapter uh, of 1 Corinthians in verse 24, uh, Paul says that every individual believer, and by extension the church as a whole, is to run in such a way as to win, to lay hold of that eternal prize that he calls us to, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And therefore, he says, run in such a way that you may win. It's not enough to just be running the race. God expects us to run a certain way, to run victoriously uh, with full effort and with clear purpose. We don't run without aim. We don't uh, beat at the air like a shadow boxer. We run to lay hold of that Prize that uh, his words here and in the preceding sections are the words of a man who's running to win. He's running in search and pursuit of the eternal prize and for Christ's glory. And that has to be our com our commitment as well. That's why we have made that sort of our uh, key statement. This is what what our church is about. We are making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ who run to win with that attitude, with that focus. And Hebrews 12 makes the point that there is no more important pursuit that we can be sold out to than this pursuit of holiness, of setting ourselves apart from sin and setting ourselves apart to God in greater obedience. Chapter 12, verse 14 says that we are to pursue sanctification, and that is, that is absolutely critical because he says without that, without sanctification, no one will see God. The pursuit of holiness then is preeminent 
it is preeminent because nothing less than eternal life is at stake when it comes to our Christian walk. It's the greatest of pursuits. Sanctification is holiness because it leads to the greatest of prizes, which is life eternal. Uh, Everything from our evangelism to our discipleship to our worship, everything is is affected by our pursuit of Christ-likeness, of holiness. But it's not just enough to say, well, I want to pursue holiness or, or that's a good thing to do. We can't just give lip service to that commitment. We need to have an actionable plan to, to get there, to accomplish it. And that is um, so important. I think that's what, when Benjamin Franklin, I think he's Benjamin Frank, Franklin was the one who said this, that failure to plan is planning to fail. And uh, I don't know if he said that or not or if it's just attributed to him, but it's true. It's a true statement. Uh, Without a plan, there is very little hope you and I will pursue holiness in a way that's consistent with with Paul's call to run to win. So what is that plan? How do we go about this task of pursuing Christ-likeness? Well, God's really laid out two uh, pathways for us as his children to pursue holiness. Um, And both require the mutual ministry of other believers in the local church. It's, it's so important for us to do that. The first pathway for pursuing holiness uh, is discipleship. And we talked about that a little bit last Sunday in chapter 4. And the second pathway by which God uh, makes us more like Christ is through discipline. So uh, they both start with the letter D, and that's intentional. The believer doesn't grow spiritually in isolation from the local church, but in commitment and fellowship with other believers in the assembly of the local church. And God works in and through our lives to make us more like Christ through discipleship and through discipline. Um, Now, on the positive end, that first pathway I mentioned is is discipleship. And this is this is really what Paul was talking about in the, in the preceding verses, in verses 14 to 21, which we saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, this is God's preferred way of maturity and growing in Christ-likeness, is through this uh, imitation, this discipleship, this following after. That's why he says in verse 16, he says, you... Exhort, I exhort you, be imitators of me. It's why he says in verse 17, I'm sending Timothy to you who will remind you of my ways which I teach in all the churches. So they would see and imitate uh, Paul, both his teaching and his, uh, those who followed after him. This is God's preferred method or way of growing us into Christ-likeness. It's each individual member supplying uh, what the joints, every joint supplying what is needed to cause the growth of the body. It's Ephesians 4, verse 16. We do that together in his church. It's relational. It is sacrificial. It's life lived with other lives, other Christian lives. It requires time. It requires an expenditure of your talents and your gifts, as well as your treasure for the benefit of others. So the first pathway to pursue holiness, and this is the preferred pathway, is discipleship, that we would be imitators of those who imitate Christ. On the negative end, though, there's a second path you can go down, or maybe rather be taken down uh, in pursuit of holiness, and that is discipline. Discipline is a way that God helps us pursue holiness. Every Christian experiences discipline to one degree or another because God disciplines those whom he loves in order that we would share in his holy character. In fact, Hebrews 12, 10, just a few verses earlier, um, the writer of Hebrews says, For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good, and this is the reason, so that we may share his holiness. And that's so important to understand. Biblical discipline, whether it's administered by God or through the um, agency of other believers, it is an expression of divine love, not divine punishment. When we are forced to discipline 
uh, someone in the church is not out of punishment. It's not punitive. It is restorative. God has already punished sin. He has dealt with sin fully and completely at the cross. So divine discipline has nothing to do with um, with punishment or, re- or, or reaping some kind of um, consequence for uh, our sin so much eternally. Divine discipline is a way for God, our Heavenly Father, to express His reconciling love to us as His beloved children. He wants us to be conformed to His image. He wants us to be like Him in all manner and practice. How does he do that then? How does God exercise this discipline? Well, the, the most immediate, I guess the, the simplest way, is through the conscience. God has given every one of us a conscience. Um, and if it's a well-informed conscience, uh, that conscience can discipline us as it convicts us of sin. So as you read the scriptures or you hear them taught... Um, maybe you have a conversation with another Christian and they, they mention something from the Word of God or how they're applying the Word of God and, and it brings conviction on your soul. You realize, wow, you know, I, that's not how I think about this or that's not how I have been living or whatever this case may be. So there's that conviction that, this, that the conscience brings to bear on our heart and that should obviously do a work of, of turning us and restoring us to God's standard. Uh, a second way that God can exercise discipline in our lives, loving discipline, is through our circumstances. So um, s- certain trials and difficulties that uh, the Lord and his providence bring into our path are meant to make us more like Christ and to uh, help us be more godly. That's why James says we're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. He says because in that circumstance, we know that God is bringing about a perfect or a whole result so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. So God uses trials and circumstances. Um, sometimes it's uh, not always a trial. It can just be the way things are unfolding in our lives to discipline us and to help us to trust him. And then the last way, so we have the conscience, we have circumstances, a third way which God exercises discipline is, is by correction. And uh, he uses other believers in the church to confront our sin and to point us to the true path. So God in his wisdom has not only built discipleship into the fabric of his church so that we would share his holiness, but he's also built um, dis- discipline into that same fabric to rescue sinners, to restore them, hopefully restore them, back to the place of spiritual strength and obedience. So both discipleship and discipline have as their final goal your holiness, my holiness, so that we might see God. And it's a discipline that occupies Paul's mind here as we come to chapter 5. We're going to break this chapter down. It's really just uh, very straightforward. Two chapters, I mean, uh, two messages. We'll look at verses 1 to 5 this week and verses 6 to 13 next week. But we can break down this chapter into four parts, and this is going to be kind of our overarching outline this Sunday and next Sunday, Lord willing. First, in verses 1 to 2, we see the problem of sin in the church. Then in verses 3 to 5, we see the the protection against sin in the church that God has built in. Verses 6 to 8, we'll see the purging of sin from the church. And then in verses 9 to 13, Next Sunday as well, we'll see the priority of dealing with sin in the church as opposed to with the world. So the protection, the, excuse me, the problem, the protection, the purging of sin, and the priority of dealing with sin in the church. And uh, that's kind of where we're going. We're going to look at just verses uh, 1 and 2 and then as our first point in verses 3 to 5 in our second. So we begin in verses 1 and 2 with the problem of sin in the church, specifically the problem that Paul is addressing as he writes to them. Again, remember, this is a letter of correction and counsel. The back half of the letter, more counsel, answering questions. The front half of this letter, first um, up through chapter 6, really, um, is him correcting their wrong um, thoughts about a lot of different things. So uh, in verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. 
namely that someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So um, Paul is talking about in the pre- Remember, at the end of last uh, message here in chapter 4, he says, I'm coming to you, and there's one of two ways I can come. I can either come with joy and with a, a spirit of gentleness and love, or I can come with the spirit of correction. And, um, and so the end of verse uh, chapter 4 really leads immediately into what he says in, verse five, in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, what do you want? And he says, because there is immorality amongst you, immorality of such a degree that it even would shock the Gentiles. They were tolerating open immorality in the church, and they weren't just like quietly ignoring this immorality. They were, in a sense, proud of it, most likely. They were boasting in it. They were, they were basically saying, look at how free we are in Christ. Um, look at how tolerant we are in Christ. What, the situation is very straightforward. A young man, younger man of some kind was living with his stepmother, not his actual mother, but his stepmother, presumably because maybe she divorced the father or maybe the father had died. We don't really know the situation. But this person who was his stepmother, whatever that is, they were now living together, cohabitating in an open physical relationship, and everyone in the church was aware of it. Everyone knew about it. And all of this is happening while this young man, whoever he is, is professing faith in Christ. Uh, It's not likely that the woman involved here was a believer because he doesn't really mention her. So it's likely that she was not even a Christian. But he, this man, this young man, was somehow... Uh, connected, whether that was through marriage and, uh, or whether it was just living together, whatever the situation. But they are, this man who's professing faith in Christ is living with his stepmother as husband and wife in a physical relationship. And this is such a flagrant violation of God's word as to, it almost defies reason. Uh, the scriptures make it crystal clear that this kind of relationship is is immoral. Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. In the law, God's word says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he will uncover his father's skirt. He says that's sin. Deuteronomy 27, verse 20. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Or in Leviticus 18, and verse 8. Moses instructed Israel that you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. This is a blatant violation of God's word. The issue is black and white. The issue is cut and dry. It is an open-shut case, as you'll ever find when it comes to dealing with sin in the church. And yet, and yet this group were content to do nothing about it. They did not address it at all. In fact, they were boasting about it. They were proud of it. Things were so upside down in this situation that the pagan Romans didn't even sanction the kind of immorality that this church was tolerating. Uh, Roman law forbid this kind of a relationship. It was illegal then, just as it's illegal now. And even more shocking to Paul is not the sin itself, but how they were dealing with it or not dealing with it, as the case may be. The problem is uh, for Paul that he's, a, that he's most incensed about is their boasting in it, their lack of concern about it. Verse 2, he says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. He says, don't you understand? This is not something to boast about. This is not a badge of honor. This is something you should be grieved over. This is something you should be ashamed about. It's something to be confronted, not commended. This person's immoral behavior shouldn't be put up with. It should be put out of the church if they refuse to repent. It is a flagrant disobedience, and it must not be embraced. It needs to be excised like a spiritual cancer from 
the body before it spreads and corrupts the other parts. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, sin's corrupting influence, just like um, uh, a, a little peck of, of, dough, of dough with yeast in it will, will permeate the whole batch if you leave it sit. And so there's a reminder here that we must deal with sin. He says, how, he says, how are they unable to do that? He says, they would ensure, how would they ensure themselves that the body would remain pure and this corrupting, sin's corrupting influence would be removed from this high-handed sin? And that leads into the second point. So the problem is just laid out there very plainly in verses 1 and 2. The answer to the question, how do you deal with it, comes in verses 3 to 5, where we see the protection against sin in the church. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. We look at the protection against sin that God has built into the fabric of his church. And this is where Paul dives into this whole issue of discipline and restoration. He says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus... I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So just a snapshot, church history. In the Reformation, a number of well-known confessions and catechisms proclaimed that a true church would be identified by kind of three, three distinctives. How would you know a true church? Um, the first was they preach pure doctrine. Uh, secondly, they administrate the ordinances of Lord's Table and Baptism. So that, that marks out a true church. They, they conduct the ordinances. And third, um, the distinctive of a church is that they would exercise church discipline. Of those, so, so the, the kind of key um, marks of a true church are preaching true doctrine, administering the ordinances, and exercising church discipline. I just think it's really significant that at a time when the gospel was being reclaimed and God's word was being kind of unlocked for the masses, that God's people said that for a church to be a true church, faithful to the scriptures, it should be marked out by a commitment to practice church discipline. And if you think about that for a second, the average church member today has never seen church discipline carried out in the context of the local church. Um, they've never seen a wayward sinner put out or restored at any level. In fact, most believers are mystified by this whole thing. It simply doesn't happen. And the reality is that for many churches, they have abandoned so many professing believers to embrace their sin without ever warning, without ever reproving, and without ever challenging their disobedience. They do not practice church discipline, and therefore they fail and abdicate their responsibility that James commands of us at the end of James chapter 5, where he says in verse 20, or 19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So the implication, of course, is that we would be turning sinners, brothers and sisters in Christ who have strayed from the truth that we would seek to turn them back. But to not do that is to abdicate that responsibility. So as we talk about church discipline, because it is so foreign to our understanding and our context, it might be helpful even before we dive into the specifics, uh, what are the kinds of sins that would lead one to be disciplined by the church? What situations would prompt us to judge, as Paul says here in verse 3, and if necessary, remove someone from the fellowship of the church uh, in a local church context? You know, over the centuries, that list has kind of uh, fluctuated dramatically from being very, very particular during the time of the Puritans to having become a little bit more general over the last 200 years. But what is clear, as you look at the New Testament, 
is that there is no list that you can point to and say, well, these are the eight sins that are worthy of church discipline. Um, it's not that specific. There is an understanding, of course, we, under, we understand this, that all sin destroys fellowship with Christ. All sin is a violation of God's law and his standard, and, um, and that all sin should be put to death. Right? We're not, we're not saying, well, there, there are like sins that we tolerate and just put up with, and there are sins that we, we have to deal with. No, all sin needs to be dealt with. Um, sin is sin, and we should be putting all sin to death in our hearts and lives, and we have a mandate to confront sin, obvious sin, and others. But the reality is that there are degrees of sins. There are some sins that are more severe and significant than others. In fact, Christ affirms that in John 19, verse 11, where he says to Pilate, Jesus does, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, Jesus is telling us there's sin that's greater than other sins. Um, and uh, so it just underscores the reality that there are serious enough sins to warrant both not only private correction, but public action before the church. And that's what I want us to consider for just a moment here. What sin would, or sins would lead us to take not only private efforts to restore and confront and restore, but also to publicly call out and um, restore the sinner and maintain the purity of the church. What are some of the categories? I'll give you three. I think these are broad headings. They're broad enough to encompass most of the major situations that we would encounter. First, um, we would definitely move toward public action discipline for sins that destroy the unity of the church body and relationships. So the kind of the first category of sins are sins that destroy unity uh, and relationships in the body of Christ. And there are a number of passages that we can point to that show us, and we've already looked at some of them in the beginning of this letter, that the serious nature of division and um, the church's response to that. But one passage that stands out in the Gospels is Matthew chapter 5. So turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23 and 24. Uh, Jesus says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and therefore, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So um, there's a priority here by Jesus that when we are at odds with another brother or sister, that that disagreement needs to be resolved as soon as possible each one going to the other, asking for forgiveness and reconciling those differences. They are not to be uh, left to fester. We're commanded in Ephesians 4 to protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the local church, and therefore conflict with other believers in the church is conflict that must be put to death and cannot be tolerated. If you look at Romans uh, 16, at the end of Romans in verse uh, 17 and 18, uh, Paul says here, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of our, their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So not only are we to deal with interpersonal conflict between believers, but when someone is actively sowing discord in the church and trying to fracture that unity around doctrinal differences and so forth, uh, that is something, a situation that could rise to the level of public confrontation. Gossip and slander about other Christians in the church is a serious issue that always needs to be dealt with because it tears at the seams of the unity in the church. And, um, and it destroys the fellowship. Uh, Paul says that we are to turn away from those kind of people. Keep an eye out for them and turn away from them if they refuse to repent. Uh, Titus chapter two, uh, 3 and verses 9 to 11, Paul says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless 
Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. So people who promote false teaching, uh, even those who make mountains out of molehills, that's the idea in verse 9, these people who are just caught up in all kinds of foolish, useless controversies, and they want to debate you know, the nuances of little texts and you know, things that really aren't significant. Uh, they are attacking the unity of the church. These are people who run around complaining about and contradicting leaders. They constantly try to draw away other believers to their cause, usually those who are young and immature. And they will oftentimes um, find ways to advocate for their pet doctrines and sympathize, uh, get people to sympathize with their personal concerns. And Paul says they are not to be tolerated, they're to be confronted. And if they persist after a first and second warning, they are to be put out of the church. So uh, sins that destroy fellowship and unity in the body, those are, that's a big category of sin that would be confronted publicly. Second, sins that entangle the sinner in immorality and corrupt behavior. Obviously, um, just looking at this passage, uh, we see that Paul's making it clear that those who are involved in corrupt and immoral behavior should be um, confronted, and if they refuse to repent, put out of the church. Paul rebukes them for tolerating the immorality that we see here in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 5. Paul says, no, the, ch- the church is to be a holy church, and therefore all corruption and all immorality must be put aside. Other situations, the church would cons- warrant both private and public confrontation, just to kind of tease this, this category out a little bit, would be um, a believer who's engaged in an adulterous relationship. A uh, believer is cheating on their spouse, will certainly be up for public confrontation. Someone pursuing a, a homosexual or transgender lifestyle, fornication, which is sexual relationship outside of marriage, unbiblical divorce and remarriage, and in the category of corruption, stealing, embezzlement, fraud, things like that. I mean, those are obvious sins that need to be confronted and repented of. Unrepentant, corrupt, immoral behavior is never to be tolerated in the fellowship of the church. There's a third category that we would probably consider utmost when it comes to public confrontation, and that is sins that involve a rebellion and rejection of God's word. So, uh, you know, the first category is uh, sins that, you know, destroy the unity and relationships. The second being, you know, sins that entangle the sinner in corrupt and immoral behavior. And the third, sins that involve rebellion and a rejection of God's word. Uh, An example of this comes in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, where Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. And then in verse 11, he describes those who are living an undisciplined life, not working, not supporting their families, running around like busybodies, just upsetting people. Um, they're not obeying God's uh, Paul's instruction, apostolic instruction. And so he's saying, listen, if your life is one of rejection and dissipation, wickedness uh, and rebellion against God's word, then you need to be put out of the church. That might be someone who's unrepentantly abusing alcohol and drugs or neglecting and abusing their family or neglecting or abusing their church family. These are all kind of categories that would fall under this heading. And then if we look at 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1, 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter um, 1, just a little one page over probably in your Bibles there, uh, in verses 19 and 20, he says, um, we are to uh, make sure that we are fighting the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, whom I handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So this would encompass those who would deny the gospel, essential, faith, essential doctrines that strike at the heart of the gospel, like the inspiration of scripture, salvation by grace through faith alone, the deity of Christ, 
virgin birth, resurrection. These are kind of things that are foundational to the faith, foundational to our understanding of gospel and salvation. Uh, One who would reject those things, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, would be put out of the church so that they would learn that God is not mocked. So all of those are kind of big categories. Uh, things, sins that destroy fellowship, sins that, uh, of immorality and corruption, and sin that is uh, clear rejection and um, rebellion against God's word. When we talk about sin that would rise to the level of public action, though, before the church, the rule of thumb is that they are sins that are obvious and serious, not sins that are obscure and small. So they're going to be sins that are clear and obvious. Um, we, we would never take public action against someone who is struggling with fear and anxiety in the church uh, or someone who is struggling with uh, the sin of thanklessness or discontentment. Uh, why? Are those okay? Are we, are we just cool with those kinds of sins? No, that's not what we're saying. But it's so difficult to, um, first of all, they aren't the unbroken pattern of almost anyone's lives. No one is always fearful and always anxious. No one is always uh, struggling with thanklessness. So uh, they're not life-dominating things, usually. But um, even if they are a struggle, they're just the normal struggles of anyone fighting against their flesh. Um, They are things that are very hard to quantify and uh, to give evidence to. Um, so we're not going to not going to elevate those to that level. Um, and we always want to err then on the side of grace when it comes to those things. Uh, certainly those things don't honor Christ, and they still need to be brought to the attention of someone if it's a clear pattern that you need to address. Um, but we would not bring that to the church publicly or put a person out of the fellowship over something that wasn't obvious and wasn't serious. And by obvious, I mean that observable actions and words that a person refuses to turn away from or disavow uh, while other believers plead with them to do so. So um, that's kind of how we think about it. Um, So now that we've identified some of the categories of sin that would lead to church discipline, um, we need to see how Exactly, God has designed the church to go about this task of discipline and restoration. And for that, we actually need to go outside of the text of 1 Corinthians 5 because um, Paul doesn't really tell us how we're to do that. He just says in verse 3 that, you know, I'm judging this person as, all, as though they're in, not there in body, but I'm there in spirit. I'm judging this person and telling you to put them from your midst, to remove them from your midst. He doesn't explain how and what leads up to that. And that's why we want to look at Matthew chapter 18. So uh, to understand what Paul's talking about here in verses 3 to 5, this protection that the church has, this process, we need to look at Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. So let me give you kind of a procedure, if you will, for discipline that Jesus gives us in his word how we are to deal with wayward sinners in the church. So um, before we ever, there are four steps really uh, to this process that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18. But uh, even before you get to step one, we'll call it step zero. And that is, uh, we'll call it private consideration. Private consideration. In many ways, the first step of discipline is self-discipline, <laughs> the way you deal with your own sin. If you are a self-disciplined person, if you have an open and transparent walk with God, and if you are gladly welcoming his convicting work through his word and the spirit, and, the, and then you're going to be quick to repent, and you're going to be quick to deal with sinful thoughts and behavior. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So if you're a self-disciplined Christian and you're exercising honest and open evaluation of your own heart before the Lord, then you're rarely, you would rarely 
need uh, any additional level of discipline in your life um, other than God's providence and his circumstances, which we certainly have no control over. But if we refuse to let God's word convict, if we refuse to let God's word reprove and shape our thoughts and our behavior, then other believers will eventually, if they love us and care for us, be required and at times obligated to engage in this next step of discipline and restoration. So Jesus outlines it first in verse 15. Step one, we'll call it private conversation. Step one is private conversation. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. So when you see another brother or sister in Christ, and they are clearly wandering from the truth, you and I have a responsibility to urge them to turn back from their sinful and unwise path. Now, does that mean that the very first moment someone sins, that you need to whack them? It's not the idea. The picture here is one of a pattern, a very obvious pattern of sin, something that is uh, very clearly something they don't see and that they need the introspective uh, work of another Christian to help them see. You approach that beloved brother or sister with a spirit of gentleness and humility to show them their sin in private. You're not talking about it with other Christians. You're not shaming them publicly. You're not gossiping about them. You're simply, out of love, going to them to show them their sin. Let me give you some very practical help on how to go about this process. First, pray before you go. Jesus says we're each to look at the, our own hearts first. We're to take the two-by-four out of our eye before we start removing the little specks in other people's eyes. Pray and ask the Lord for wisdom and for you if there's any sin that you need to deal with. Secondly, if you need to go and speak to your brother or sister, carve out a time when you're not distracted. It's very hard to have a serious conversation while you're walking you know, out the door to go somewhere else. Or when some, you know, if you're together and, you know, the kids are yelling and screaming and things are running around and no one's attention is really there, you need to make sure that it's a time that you're not distracted. I would encourage you, as you, conf- as you may need an opportunity to confront sin, to be affirming. There's much in their lives that you can, can thank God for, that you can affirm and, um, and stand behind. Uh, and then I would encourage you to ask for permission. That might be as simple as saying, like, hey, I've noticed something uh, in, in our conversations or in our interactions over the last, I don't know, however much period of time, last several weeks or last several months, and it just concerns me. I didn't, would it would be okay if I were to share that with you. That can be a very disarming way for them to give you permission to say what you're going to say. Share your concern, keep it simple. Say what's necessary in a kind way, in a gracious way, and uh, refuse to deliver a final verdict. Uh, Additionally, leave time to listen. Maybe there's something about the whole situation that you don't understand completely or you're missing. So um, when you've only heard one side of the story or only seen someone in a very specific context, sometimes it can be unclear. So leave time to listen. Uh, Explain from the scriptures what the Word of God says and what this God's standard is. We always, always, always instruct ignorance. We don't need to confront ignorance. We instruct ignorance and always assume ignorance. Even if it's the most obvious thing in the world, you say, well, how could they not know that? Instruct ignorance. Assume ignorance. And then after you've instructed, if they're continuing, that's when you confront rebellion. So explain God's word, instruct ignorance, show them from the scriptures what God's standard is, promise to pray for them. This will encourage them as they seek to reconcile and restore. I'm going to pray for you now that the Lord would give you a conviction over this and give you strength to obey him in this way, in this situation. Follow up with them because you love them. And lastly, rejoice because more often than not, God will use you to restore a wayward sinner to the true path. And so Paul says, I mean uh, Jesus says here, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. So 
Rejoice. Give thanks. So, so pray, carve out time, be affirming, ask permission, share your concern, leave time to listen, explain God's word, promise to pray, follow up with them, and rejoice if they repent. So that's all kind of the private conversation. That should be just you and another person, more likely than not. But if they refuse to repent, and that can happen, and they don't refuse to reconcile, then the next step must be taken, which Jesus lays out in verse 16. And that is, he says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Here, we're involving others, just a couple, to speak, to meet with them in private, who can confirm the issue of sin at hand and lend another voice to this call for them to be restored. And while meeting face-to-face is always best, the person may refuse to meet with you or may not want to talk to you about the issue at this point. So that might require an email or a phone call or a letter to get their attention about the seriousness of the situation. But the point is that you're making your your appeal to them to turn back to God's standard with the same attitude and the same, the same urgency that we described in step one. The goal of all of this is restoration. The goal of all of this is, is to set things in order. You and I want to restore them back to a place of strength and obedience. If they still refuse, though, um, after a number of interactions and a generous period of time, this would be the time where more serious sins would be lead to an official warning from the church. And that will be, again, an attempt to win them back, which leads to step three. So step one is private conversation. Uh, number two, step two is private corroboration, two or three witnesses. Step three is public confrontation. Tell it to the church. He says, if they fail to hear you in that context, then for those obvious sins, those serious sins, those public sins that need to be dealt with publicly, he says, tell it to the church. Before this happens, on a practical level, we would send a letter letting the person know that they have until a certain time and date to sit down with us and to deal with the issue, whatever the issue may be. Um, If they don't, then their name will be read before the church in a public worship meeting. We usually would do that around the Lord's table. And we would enlist the entire church to go as a rescue party to call them back, to repent and to turn away from their sin. Again, public confrontation only happens when there's a lack of repentance, a a hard-heartedness to acknowledge and turn away from a sinful path that might be pursuing a divorce in the face of an obvious counsel that that's not tr- that's not biblical. It might be um, it might be something where someone refuses to acknowledge that they stole something, and all the evidence points to the fact that they have in fact stolen something, or whatever the case may be. They refuse to reconcile with another brother or sister in the church because they're angry over some slight some sin that they perceive has been done against them. Whatever the case may be, it's obvious, and they're still refusing. And so we enlist the church to broaden out that search party, to call them back. But even then, even then, some will be hardened in their sin. They refuse to repent, and that leads to step four. If the second to last step is sin being exposed... The final step then, step four here, public condemnation, is exclusion. The person is still refusing to turn away from their sin. They have, by default, chosen to love their sin over loving Christ and his people. And so verse 17 says, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So because they've chosen to pursue this person, has chosen their sin over following Christ, Jesus says you're to treat them as an unbeliever. You would draw fellowship, and you assume, based on their rebellion, that they are denying the faith. Their exclusion, then, from the fellowship is not meant to um, hurt them in the sense of punish them, but is as a way to 
um, move them to repentance. To by putting them out of the fellowship of the church, you essentially protect the purity of the church. But as they feel the weight of that exclusion from the from the fellowship, that they would hopefully turn back. You think about the prodigal son. When when did the prodigal son repent, and when did he turn back? It was when he was in the pig pen, right? When he was at the bottom. You see it when you come to the end of yourself. You see it when your desires, your autonomy, all those things are fully exposed um, in your selfishness, and you turn away from that in true repentance. And uh, for some people who are self-deceived, some people who are hardened in their rebellion, it has to come to that. Unfortunately, they will not learn any other way except to receive the harshest, the harshest punishment. And this is, this is what we would have to do. It's not something that we would undertake. Um, f- it's not something we would undertake quickly. It's not something that we would undertake um, casually. It would be a serious thing, one that would require great prayer, great patience, and um, a, a genuine seriousness. We give the person every opportunity to deal. Uh, righteously, and even if they're working toward a resolution, that is enough to stave off this process. But if they are actively in rebellion, then it may come to this. Now, Jesus gives us this pattern, this four-step pattern, but what he doesn't give us is the timeline. There's no timeline for this. Um, it can, and 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 wisdom would in, would demand that we be patient and slow. That we would not rush this process through. It's not like a sin's identified on Monday and on Sunday you're kicked out of the church. That's not how this would work. It would be something where there would be a, a process and there would be many people speaking to them in multiple occasions. And then there would be a time and an opportunity for the church to go and call them. And then if everything is still being rejected, that we would, we would be forced to put them out. But as I said earlier... The average church refuses to take these steps of condemning unrepentant sinners publicly. Even fewer are willing to exclude them from the fellowship of the church. Um, I can remember as a young person going to a church, um, a Bible teaching church, large. It was a large church, and um, and there were people in that church in that my parents knew that were in the Bible study together with them, and they were actively, um, they were actively uh, separated, and they were pursuing relationships with other believers, in quote-unquote believers, in that church while they were still married. Everyone that knew them knew about it, and the church did absolutely nothing. They were able to come on Sundays and worship and sing songs and act like everything was perfectly normal. And even as an unbeliever, as a kid, I, I still thought that was just so utterly ridiculous that a church would allow that to go on. But it happens all the time. And, uh, and so because there are so few who will stand up for the truth, and, uh, refu- and there are so many who refuse to obey God's word on this matter, what ends up happening is the church subsidizes sinners and coddles their disobedience. Practically speaking, then, they abandon these souls who are enslaved to their sin, and in the process, they, all, they lead to the corruption of the whole fellowship of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, we said it earlier, your boasting, he says, is not good. You do not know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So the reality is, that sin needs to be dealt with because sin has a corrupting influence on the body of Christ, especially in a small church where everybody knows what's happening. You might be thinking, what gives the church the authority to judge a sinner in this way? What authority does the church have? Well, Matthew 18, in verses 18 and 19 uh, and 20, Jesus gives us um, that authority He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
And again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The point Jesus is making here is that when the church disciplines with biblical fidelity, it acts with heavenly sanction and approval. That's the, that's the meaning here. In other words, when the church acts on earth, it acts with divine mandate and divine authority. It's why he says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Binding has the idea of rendering a judgment that sticks, judging the wayward sinner, publicly condemning them for their disobedience. If If you tie that to them on earth, God affirms that that is true in heaven and vice versa. If you loose them, if you restore the wayward sinner, publicly welcoming them back because of their repentance and their renewed obedience, then it is forgiven, excuse me, and they are loosed. It is loosed in heaven. It's very important then, as we read verse 20, that we understand the context of verse 20. Many people love to use this as, a, as an encouragement um, for uh, God's presence in a prayer meeting. Uh, But that's not what this is talking about at all. It's talking about church discipline. Uh, It's saying that, uh, I mean, God is with us no matter where we are. We don't need just two or three people for Christ to be in our midst. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. Uh, So this really doesn't even add anything to our understanding of how God operates in the world. But what he's saying here is, where two or three have established a matter as sinful and either affirmed it or renounced it or whatever, they act with divine authority. And uh, he says, I am in their midst. And that's what Paul's saying, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 5, where he says there, he says, uh, I am with you. I have already judged this person. I'm with you in spirit, even though I'm absent in body. He says, and I, the, the connection between verse 3 and verse 4, he says, I have judged him, and the, the judging is what is in view here in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. In other words, with that divine authority that, that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, he says, I am with you on the authority of Christ that you need to deal with this person and put them out of the church. So that is where the authority comes from. But if we look back at Matthew 19 for just a second, and we're going to end here, it reminds us that his power, that our power to discipline, isn't simply a cold, mechanical, institutional exercise of the church's authority. It's quite the contrary. He says, my father, my father. It is the responsibility given to the family of believers, God's children. And our actions and our discipline are carried out lovingly as those who operate under the authority of one we mutually call our heavenly Father. It's an expression then of God's fatherly love that he disciplines us this so that we would share in his holiness. And so this is the process, the protection that God has placed on, in his church to pr- protect the purity and the holiness of his church. It's not something that we enter into lightly. It's not something that we rush into, but it's one that we must be willing to embrace. And will, uh, if the Lord tarries, more likely than not, we will have opportunity to do this. So I don't want you to be shocked by it. In fact, when we do our membership interviews, we always explain how this process might unfold so that no one is taken aback if, perchance, someone's name is read, for instance, at the Lord's table, and we ask you to call that person back. Um, We never know what the situation may present itself. That is not uh, meant to shame or humiliate. It's meant to call them back to God's standard. And as we see, we'll see next time in verses 6 to 8, and then in verses 9 to 13, God, Paul is going to make it clear to us that we are to purge all sin. That really, the, the heart of this section is verses 6 to 8, where he says we are to be a new lump 
We are to be a pure, uh, unleavened loaf, if you will, because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And there's so much imagery there that we'll unpack next time. And in verses 9 to 13, he makes it clear that we are to deal with sin in the church first and foremost, and not to be vexed and exercised and worked up about sin outside the church because God will judge those who are outside the church. So uh, next week we'll see the purging of sin in the church and in verses 9 to 13, the priority of dealing with sin in the church. So let me pray for us as we dismiss. Lord, your word is so rich. It gives us so much instruction, practical. It's so clear to us what your expectation is. And yet, so many have managed to ex- just ignore whole sections of Scripture or refuse to take certain actions because of practical consequences that may flow from that. Lord, may we always seek to be pleasing to you in all things, first and foremost. We thank you that you're a God who loves us enough not only to give us a context for discipleship where we can imitate those who imitate you, but you also love us enough to give us uh, those who would call us back to your faithful standards. Lord, help us to be those who are sensitive to our sin and alert and gracious for the needs of sin of others that we might lead them back to the path of obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.